This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of our dear cousins, Jason and Risa Friedman. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for your friendship. And thank you for your encouragement. We are lucky and fortunate enough to be in the book of Exodus in Parsha's Shmos. It was an absolute joy and delight to go through the book of Genesis with you. I'm looking forward to embarking on the book of Exodus, and we begin with a loaded Parsha live from the Torah Center. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volvi with the Parsha Podcast. We begin Parsha's Shmos. We're going to share the Ramban's comment on the introduction to the book. We're going to share another observation on the Parsha, and we're going to end off this Parsha Podcast, please God, with a very powerful insight. So when we began the book of Genesis, we began with the introduction of the Ramban to the Torah. I want to begin the book of Exodus with the Ramban's short but highly informative introduction to Exodus. And he points out that there is a singular common theme to the book of Genesis. Of course, the book of Genesis, it begins with the creation. It goes to Adam and Adam and Eve and that whole story and Noah, and then we meet the family of Abraham, and that really takes us to the end of Genesis. It doesn't appear that there is a uniform theme thread throughout the book, but the Ramban tells us that there is. The book of Genesis, says the Ramban, is the book of creation. It begins with the creation of the world with Genesis, and then it talks about the creation of all things, and then it tells us the story, the batch story, the chronicles of the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that too is the creation of the template of Jewish history. This is a theme that Rabban shares many times throughout the book of Genesis, namely that everything that's happening to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a harbinger, a portent of the events that are going to happen to their children throughout their history. So that's the common theme of the book of Genesis. And Rabban tells us the rest of the Torah is also going to have a singular common theme, and that is the actualization of those hints. There's a condensed version of the story of the Jewish people, and that's the book of Genesis, and then there's a more elaborate version of that, and that's the rest of the Torah. And now he focuses on the book of Exodus. Exodus, of course, doesn't initially appear to have one overlapping theme. So, of course, it talks about the enslavement the Jewish people had in Egypt, the miraculous exodus, of course, the ten plagues. Eventually, we leave after much fanfare, the splitting of the sea, the Egyptians die, we end up by Mount Sinai, and we get the Torah, we have the experience of Sinai, but you do have four and a half sections, four and a half partios, that talk about the building of the tabernacle, and that doesn't immediately dovetail into a unified theme. Says the Ramban, no, the book of Exodus, it talks about the first exile, namely the Egyptian exile, where the Jewish people, they were really in, in Israel and in the land of Canaan. They, through the circuitous events of the end of the book of Genesis, ended up in Egypt. They burgeoned into a nation, but they were enslaved. And then they were redeemed. And that's a theme that appears many times throughout Jewish history. The first time that it happened, exile followed by redemption, is the story of Exodus. And therefore, the Parsha begins with delineating the children of Jacob, because that's the beginning of the exile. Once they descended to Egypt, that's when the exile happened. Now you may ask, says the Ramban, 
well, what does the Sinai experience, which happened after they were released from the clutches of Egypt, and what does the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, what does that have to do with the redemption? The Rabban tells us that full redemption is only when there is a restoration of the physical and the spiritual stature of the patriarchs, the Jewish people. When we are in our perfected state, we're like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have a close, intimate, personal connection with God. And of course, we have the flexibility to live the kind of life that we want. When the Jewish people are enslaved, there are two components to that servitude. Of course, there's the physical enslavement, and then there's the spiritual enslavement. And because of both of those components, we are in exile. When does the redemption reach its conclusion? Not when the Jewish people escape Egypt physically and they see their Egyptian overlords being drowned in the water, but when they're completely restored to the status of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a direct, intimate, and personal connection with God. The Jewish people are not fully redeemed until they too develop an intimate, personal connection with God. And the whole story of Exodus, from the beginning to the end, is all about restoring the Jewish people to that state, and that is manifested by the tabernacle, and thus the entire book, from beginning to end, is a description of, initially, of the first chapter, is about the enslavement of the Jewish people, and then we have the rest of the book, is about their redemption. So that's an interesting thought to keep in mind as we begin this parsha, as we begin this book, there is, according to the Rabban, one cohesive theme throughout the whole book of Exodus. It begins with exile, with submission, subjugation, servitude, and it ends with redemption. And the definition of redemption is to be restored to the level, in all ways, to the level of the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a nice idea that we keep with us throughout our studies of the book of Exodus. I want to begin with a very interesting observation. Of course, in chapter 2 of this book, we meet Moses, and he has a very dramatic story happen to him as a child. He's put in the box, and the box is allowed to float on the water. His sister watches him. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up essentially as a stepson of Pharaoh, but then once he matures, he's going to right away begin to behave like a leader, and not just any leader, a leader of the Jewish people. And the first thing we find out about him is that when he grows up, he goes out to inspect the well-being of his brethren, and he begins to vigorously defend them, and he even endangers his own life as a result, and he has to escape. So the first thing we find out about Moses is that he is going to behave with feelings of brotherhood towards his fellow Jews, towards his co-religionists. Now, I also found it interesting that there is a remarkable exchange between Moses and his biological brother, Aaron. So the Parsha from chapter 3 tells us that Moses has a vision at the burning bush, and God tells him, okay, you're appointed to go save the Jewish people. They're suffering tremendously at the hands of Pharaoh, and they're crying out to me, go save them. And Moshe launches this seven-day objection to God's instruction 
to go to Egypt to save the Jewish people. And he presents a series of reasons why that's a bad idea. He, he, he's not eloquent enough and what name should he say and they won't believe me. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 13, he tells God, send Aaron. Don't send me, send Aaron. He didn't want, Rashi tells us, to one-up his brother and to evoke envy and competition between the two. And God responds in the following verse, Aaron is totally free of envy. He's going to see you and be glad and delighted in his heart. He's not going to have a scintilla of envy, and therefore, you're the right man for the job. And what struck me is that this kind of brotherhood and kinship is a dramatic departure from what we see with siblings in the book of Genesis. We could almost describe the book of Genesis as the book of sibling rivalry and certainly sibling asymmetry. In fact, the very last episode in Genesis, after Jacob has died, the brothers, they're worried that Joseph has been harboring envy and and revenge within him, and they're worried that the hammer is finally going to drop and they have to concoct a story that, that Jacob told them to tell Joseph to forgive them. And Joseph surprises them by saying, no, 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 I'm really not angry at you. I haven't been pretending for the last 17 years. Really, it was God orchestrating. He was the puppet master behind everything that happened. But we see again sibling conflict at the very end of the book. And I sat down and I made a list of the 12 partios the 12 Torah sections of the book of Genesis. And I found at least one episode of sibling rivalry, sibling conflict, and certainly sibling asymmetry in every single one of those parshios. Of course, the first parsha, Beratius, we have the very first siblings, Cain and Abel, there's tremendous envy, and of course, there is fratricide, there's murder. And then we read about Noah. Noah has three sons, One son, Ham, he sodomizes, alternatively, he castrates Noah. The other two brothers, they put the blanket on their shoulder, they walk back and they cover their father and they try to restore his dignity. Ham is cursed, that brother. Shame and Yafes and and Japheth, they're blessed. And then Lech Lecha, even though Lech Lecha, I didn't find an instance of fraternal conflict, but there's... uh, prophecy about fraternal conflict or fraternal asymmetry, and Abraham has a fight with his brother-in-law, and he calls them brothers, and they have to go separate ways. And Abraham is told you're going to have a son, Isaac, who's going to triumph, who's going to supersede, who's going to outshine his half-brother, Ishmael. And then Vayera, Ishmael tries to kill Isaac, two brothers, not behaving the way we would hope brothers should behave. Ishmael is banished, and Isaac is cherished. Ishmael has sent away to save Isaac from his poor influence. And then we get to Chayesara. We have two siblings. Laban is the cunning, conniving, scheming, idolatrous, greedy brother. And Rebecca is the kind and righteous and wonderful in every way sister. We have Abraham's six sons. They're sent away with token gifts. Isaac is decreed to be the true heir. Of course, the next parish of Jacob and Asaph, fighting from the very beginning, warring before birth. Asaph wants to kill him, etc., etc. The next parish of Rachel and Leah, they're contrasted throughout the whole parsha. Rachel's beautiful. Leah's eyes are marred from tears. Rachel is Jacob's intended wife. 
Leah's sent instead. Rachel's beloved, Leah's hated. Leah's fertile, Rachel is barren. They're both jockeying to see who's going to have more sons from Jacob, even to the point of setting up Jacob with their maidservants. There is this dramatic confrontation over the dudaim, over those aphrodisiacs, those herbs or spices that were believed to cause fertility. Leah tells her sister, is it not enough that you took my husband? Now you want to take my dudaim? Again, conflict between siblings at almost every interaction between two siblings. Next Parsha, Jacob and Esau reunite. Of course, Esau wants to kill his brother. Jacob has to prepare to fight. He sends this flattering bribe slash gift. The next Parsha, we have the brothers and Joseph. Even in the dreams of Joseph, Joseph's on a pedestal. He's higher. They're below him. They're subservient to him. They bow down to him. When they hear that, they can't speak positively about him. They try to kill him. And they compromise. You know what? Let's just throw him into a pit or sell him as a slave. Judah is demoted from his brothers. Tamar has twins. And one stitches his hand out, strings placed upon his wrist. And suddenly his brother Parrots burst out ahead of him. Again, every time we look at brothers or siblings in the book of Genesis, they are misaligned. They're on different wavelengths. They're taking very different trajectories in life. They're fighting. They're warring. They're con- there's conflict between them. Jacob sends his son to Egypt, not Benjamin. These ones go. These one, This one doesn't. Joseph, of course, toys with his brothers. He accuses them of espionage. The brothers are blaming each other for the fiasco. Joseph demands that Benjamin is brought down. They dine with Joseph. Benjamin is given five portions. Everyone else gets only one. Benjamin's framed. He's detained. There's the standoff between Joseph and Judah. Joseph reveals himself. He's able to speak. They're speechless. Again and again and again, we see this theme that brothers in Genesis are at odds. Even Joseph, he wants to bring his two boys to be blessed simultaneously, and Jacob almost insists on causing conflict by switching the hands. And finally, the brothers are still worried, even after the passing of Jacob, and even after Joseph has not harmed them for 17 years, they're worried that he's going to finally exact his revenge. And then we begin the book of Exodus, and we see Moses, and he's behaving like a brother. He's defending. He is protecting. He's willing to put himself out there to endanger his life to save even his non-biological brothers. And then we see Moses and Aaron, and each one is selflessly forfeiting, yielding to their brother. Each one's so happy with the other one's success. Each one wants to promote the other one. They're not acting as rivals at all. They're all concerned with the advancement of their brother. They're trying to live a complementary life what a sharp contrast between how the brothers are portrayed in Genesis versus how they are in Exodus. And the Ramban told us in his introduction that the book is about exile to redemption, subservience to Pharaoh, subservience to God. Maybe we could speculate, why were they in exile? Why were they redeemed? Maybe we could suggest when there is disunity, when there is factionalism, when there are fissures in families, that's going to provoke exile. When there's harmony, when there's love, when there's kinship, that's going to trigger redemption. And here we see, we're given this story, we're given this contrast. All of Genesis, I'm sure there were interactions that were very positive between brothers, but the large part of what we're told about brothers is one of brothers 
and sisters and siblings on different wavelengths combating, competing with each other. And then we see this wonderful departure, Moses and Aaron, two brothers, each equally invested in promoting the other, even if it means that they get less. Maybe we could suggest that is the trigger of redemption. When the Jewish people finally get to Sinai, there's a very famous Rashi that tells us that the whole nation was united as one man with one purpose. The only way they could have been receptacles of Torah is if there was peace and love and harmony and kinship and brotherhood between them. I want to add one more insight before we conclude this very special edition of the Parsha podcast. If you think about it, when we look at all of world history, and the Rambam says this explicitly, everything that happened before Abraham and everything that happened from Abraham on is divided into two separate epochs, two separate worlds, two separate storylines. The Rambam tells us that the Almighty had a plan for the world. There was a mission. There was something that needed to happen for the world to achieve its purpose. And everything that happened before Abraham was going in the opposite direction. The world was ascending towards idolatry, away from God, away from the intended purpose of creation. And then Abraham shows up. And Abraham changes the world. He independently discovers God and begins to promulgate that, to disseminate that throughout the world. And he is designated as the forbearer of the family that's going to become the nation, that's going to become the Jewish people, that's going to bring the world towards perfection to complete what Abraham began. And at this point in our history, the beginning of Exodus, this family has grown into the nation, but they're suffering tremendously. They're being enslaved by Pharaoh. They're being murdered. There's genocide. It's just a terrible state of the nation. And the Almighty tells Moses, okay, you are going to change that. I am entrusting you with the mission to save the world's purpose, to save the nation that the world hinges upon. You're going to be the one to effectuate that change, bring him out of Egypt, bring him to Mount Sinai. They're going to get the Torah, head back to Israel and begin to change the world. There's no more consequential mission of all time than the one that Moses is going to do. And if you read the story critically, it's clear that it almost didn't happen. Lots of things had to go right thanks to other players in order for Moshe to actually undertake his mission. So, of course, Rashi tells us that, quoting from the Talmud, Miriam, Moses' older sister, had to convince her parents. Her parents got divorced. Once Pharaoh decreed that all male sons are thrown into the water, Moses' parents, Amr and got divorced. It's not worth being married because... What's the point having a family if all the kids are going to die? And Miriam said, you're worse than Pharaoh because Pharaoh only wants to kill the boys and you want to kill everyone because effectively, if there is no marriage, there's no boys and there's no girls. So, okay, Miriam's important to the story. If not for Miriam, there won't be any Moses. And of course, Moses is thrown into the water. He's floating in his little box and the daughter of Pharaoh comes and she sees him. And she reaches him, she grabs him, she notices that he's a Hebrew, and she adopts him. And Moses is given immunity, so to speak, from being persecuted as a Jew, 
because of this story. Again, if not for her, of course, God has his ways. But the, in the way things happened, she played a critical role. And who knows what would have happened if not for her playing and contributing her vital part. I want to focus on two points in particular that almost imperiled Moshe's mission. As we mentioned earlier, there's seven days of intense negotiation. Moses is repeatedly objecting to the mission, and his final objection is, send Aaron. I don't want to embarrass, I don't want to shame Aaron, I don't want to cause him envy. Let Aaron go instead. And the Almighty gets angry. And he testifies that Aaron is going to be glad in his heart. He has zero envy. In fact, my grandfather of blessed memory pointed out that the only person to whom the Torah assigns this classification, this designation, that they have no envy is Aaron. Even in his heart, he is delighted for Moshe. If you think about this, the Almighty got angry at Moses for this objection. And in fact, Rashi tells us that Moses was punished. Moses was supposed to be the Kohen and Aaron was supposed to be the Levite. But because Moses failed to recognize Aaron's character and the fact that he has no envy, those roles were reversed. Moses became the regular standard Levite and Aaron became the forebearer of the Kohanim, of the Kohen family, of the Kohen class within the Levites. But if you think about this for a second, you'll notice something very powerful. God gets angry at Moses. Moses, that is an improper objection to say, oh, Aaron's going to be upset. Aaron's going to be embarrassed. Aaron's going to be ashamed. Aaron's going to have envy. But why is that an incorrect objection? What's implicit in the text is that let's say Aaron indeed would have been envious then Moses would have made a correct calculation. That's a good enough reason to abort the mission. The only criticism on Moshe's objection was that the facts on the ground were that there was no envy. But let's say Aaron did have envy. He would have been jealous. He would have felt bad that his younger brother gets all the glory. Well, then Moses was right. Those are good grounds to discard this mission. The fact that the nation is suffering doesn't matter. And that raises an obvious question. Wouldn't the ends of saving the people override the hurt feelings of Aaron? Don't we say you got to crack a few eggs to make a decent omelet? Why do we discover in the text that had Aaron felt bad about Moses's promotion, Moshe would have properly discarded the mission? Why? Isn't that something that we should very willingly give up to save the Jewish people? Secondly, there's another way that the mission could have been abandoned even before it began. The verse tells us in chapter 4, verse 18, that Moses went to his father-in-law Yisro, Jethro, and asked for permission to go back to Egypt. After they finished the negotiation, he goes and asks permission from Jethro. You think about this. God tells you to go to Egypt. What does Moses do? He goes to his father-in-law, who until very recently was an idolater, and he says, can I have your permission to leave? Isn't that crazy? God tells you to go to Egypt, and you spend seven days arguing that you shouldn't, but you finally agreed. But you know what? I have to ask my pagan or my previously pagan father-in-law to see if he allows me to leave. 
What's going on over here? And to make matters even more perplexing, the Midrash says that Moses did the right thing. He had to ask his father-in-law why, because before he got married, he made a pledge, he made an oath, he made a promise to his father-in-law that he's not going to leave without his permission. And therefore, now that he wants to leave, he has to actually get his permission to go. Now, Yisro, Jethro, was gracious, magnanimous enough to say go. But what would have happened had Jethro said, no, I'm not willing to forego the oath. You have to stay here. Apparently, the simple reading of the text is that Moses indeed would have told God, I'm sorry, I made a promise to my previously pagan father-in-law. I can't listen to you. Don't we have a principle that says that if God tells you to do one thing and your father-in-law tells you to do something else, you listen to God? And the Midrash goes on to say that because of this sensitivity to truth, because Moses insisted on asking Jethro for permission, he never swore falsely. And as a result, he ascended the mountain of God. He was worthy to get the Torah for the Jewish people. Why was Moses the right person? Why was the appropriate figure to get Torah for the Jewish people? Midrash tells us because he never transgressed his oath. He asked Jethro for permission before he went to Egypt. I think there's a very powerful lesson here. We don't say that the ends justify the means if you are transgressing the will of God. The Almighty is not going to tell us to do something if it means trampling on someone else's feelings, if it means transgressing your oath, if it means violating the rules of proper conduct. That's not what the Almighty wants of us. And maybe on a deeper level, the whole idea of man doing something to fulfill the will of God, that really is a problematic idea because after all, doesn't God have all the power? Why does he need me? God doesn't need Moses to save the Jewish people. God could have done it himself. So Moses is saying here, hey, God wants me to do it. Obviously, that doesn't mean that he has, doesn't have the power. It means that this is the design. This is how he wants it. He wants me to do it. But it's not because only I can achieve that result. And therefore, if I must violate someone else's feelings, if I must do something wrong to get there, well, then let God do it. Yes, the Jewish people are enslaved, but so what? The Almighty can change that. I'm not the only one who has the ability to change that. And if it means me trampling over someone else's feelings, the wrong thing to do, let God do it himself. We see examples of this throughout the Torah. When Jacob usurped the blessings from his brother, he stole them, so to speak, tricked, swindled Isaac. The verse tells us that Rebekah sent Jacob to make those delicacies. And Rashi tells us that they belonged to her by right. What's implied for that is that even though the future of the Jewish people hinge upon Jacob usurping the blessings, unless that food was rightfully Rebecca's, she would not have stolen them in order to get those blessings. Yes, the whole Jewish people's life and existence hinges upon these blessings, but I'm not going to steal to go get them. Another example, Tamar. She has twins 
and Judah is the father. And we know who those twins are. We're talking about the forebearers of King David, of Solomon, of Hillel, of Rabbi Gamaliel, of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and of course of Messiah. Yet she's willing to forfeit it all to not embarrass Judah publicly. This is a very valuable insight here. We all want to be activists. We all want to accomplish something great. We all see a world that has so much room for improvement and we are given the tools to change it. Not only that, that's what we have to do. That's our mission. But there's going to be a temptation for us to say, let's do things that are a little bit shady, a little bit immoral. After all, it's all for the greater good. The ends justify the means. It's only a small price to pay to accomplish the mission. Moshe is telling us that's a mistake. There's no mission that we can have that's greater than what Moshe was entrusted with. And you know what? Aaron, he wouldn't have been hurt that much even if he was hurt. The pain, so to speak, that Moshe was worried about was comparatively minor. Similarly, how bad is it to transgress the oath that you made to your father not to leave without his permission if God tells you to leave? It's not the end of the world. We could stomach that. Reasonable to pay that price. Taking a corrupt way to a worthy goal, Moshe tells us, it's wrong. It's against the will of God. And in both instances, the Almighty agrees with Moses. Why is Moses the one who ascends the mountain of God, the Midrash tells us? Specifically because he didn't violate his oath. And in truth, had Aaron been offended? Had he been like everyone else that does have a little bit of envy in their hearts? That does have a little bit of a spirit of competition in their hearts? Moses would have been right to say, send Aaron instead. The only criticism levied against Moses is that you didn't recognize how great Aaron really was, that even in his, the, the inner sanctums of his heart of hearts, he has no envy. But if there was, well, then it would be inappropriate and wrong for you to violate that even at the expense of not saving the Jewish people. What's going to be with them? You know what? The results are in the hands of the Almighty. I have to do what's right. And if it's wrong, even if the mission is so vital, let the Almighty take care of it. Don't be under the impression that the Almighty needs us to achieve something. He could do it all himself. And when there is a seemingly irresistible opportunity to change the world. And the only things that we need to do to accomplish that, yes, there's a few people that are going to be offended. Yes, there's going to be a little pain and suffering for others. But you know what? It's worth it. No, that's a mistake. That's a sign of someone who doesn't really believe in God. That's a sign of someone who thinks that they're the ones who's really changed the world. They're not just fulfilling what the Almighty really wants of us. A very powerful lesson that we see from this parsha, and of course, we meet the exemplars of brothers. May we all be blessed with the same love and kinship that Moses and Aaron are displaying for each other here, uh, that we should have that with our siblings, with our children, should have that with each other, and hopefully the whole Jewish people will unite and will be worthy of once again having that final redemption. Hope everyone has a wonderful Shabbos. Please forgive the fact that this podcast is being uploaded Late in the week, it was a chaotic week. If you want to hear more about it, you can email me. My email address is rabbiolbedima.com. I look forward to speaking to y'all next week.